0: I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the second in our series on a new generation of evangelical leadership. This hour, I'm with Rick and Kay Warren at their Saddleback Church in California. After the phenomenal sales of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose-Driven Life... Kay Warren became a bridge building activist on AIDS. And at a tiny remote church in the African bush, Rick Warren discovered an aspect of Christian purpose he'd been neglecting. This has led to a new global chapter in their exploration of Christianity and public life.
1: All I had was a tent, and it was 75 people, 50 adults, and 25 kids orphaned by AIDS. And I thought, this church is doing more to help the poor than my mega church. We're not helping one orphan, and they're helping 25 with all they've got is a tent. And that was like a knife in my heart and said, that is going to change.
0: This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. This hour, we continue our exploration of new guiding figures in what some are calling the post-religious right era— Rick Warren is best known as pastor of one of the largest churches in the U.S. and author of one of the world's best-selling books, The Purpose-Driven Life. He's also increasingly watched by a new generation of Christian and secular leaders who want to move beyond the partisan and cultural divides of recent years. Most recently, Rick and Kay Warren have channeled their visibility and wealth into global projects to fight AIDS and poverty. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the second part in our series, The New Evangelical Leaders. This past weekend at Rick and Kay Warren's Saddleback Church outside Los Angeles, policy experts, global dignitaries, and faith leaders addressed over 1,500 people at their third annual Global Summit on AIDS and the Church. Hillary Clinton was there to speak about her agenda for confronting global disease. Other presidential candidates from both parties delivered video messages. John McCain, Barack Obama, John Edwards, Mitt Romney, and Mike Huckabee. This is just one sign of the appeal and authority Rick and Kay Warren have achieved in a handful of years. But for the past three decades, Rick Warren has been building pragmatic, global networks of clergy and lay partners and followers. Here he is preaching before 100,000 people at the World Cup Stadium in Seoul, South Korea in 2006.
1: Now our theme is a hope for a wave of revival. And one of the reasons why the church continues to be blessed is because it has the ability to have renewal. God loves to do new things.
0: Is I interviewed Rick and Kay Warren at their Saddleback Church in Lake Forest in Orange County, California. This is not merely a church, but a campus with multiple worship sites, a resource center, and a three building children's ministry complex. Some have criticized Rick Warren for watering down the gospel here with easy new age worship and themes. By contrast, the late management guru Peter Drucker once called Saddleback the R&D Department of Christianity. Understanding what the Warrens have created here is key to understanding who they are and what kind of influence they've begun to exert beyond this place. Today, Lake Forest is a busy, sprawling suburb of Los Angeles— But when Rick and Kay Warren arrived as a young married couple with a toddler in the mid 1970s, it was mostly open fields. There was an old red barn next to the high school in town. Yet, following demographic trends, they knew this area was certain to fill up with houses and shopping centers and young families, and they planned to be there as it did.
1: I had studied the 100 largest churches in America. I wrote to every one of them. And it was just on my own. It wasn't a class assignment. And I thought, what is it that makes a church healthy, mm-hmm. that one really impacts the community? And one of the characteristics is the pastor stays put. He's been there like 10, 20, 30 years. So I really told the Lord, I said, I'll go anywhere in the world if you'll let me spend my entire life in one location. Okay. I really didn't care really? what it was. Really? So
0: you came here?
1: We made a 40-year commitment. Our intention. Uh-huh. We made a 40-year okay. commitment. I was 25 years old. We had gotten engaged, and right after we got engaged, I moved to Nagasaki, Japan, to teach English, and she moved to inner city Birmingham, Alabama, to work in an inner city church there. So when we got ready, we were about finishing seminary. I got up out a map of the world, and we put it on the wall, and we started praying, and said, okay, we'll go anywhere.
0: Now, you then became one of, you know, some of the innovators in what is now known as the megachurch phenomenon, yeah. along with people like Bill Hybels. At the time, did you know that you were setting out to create a megachurch? Did you really have a vision of what it would be? I had become? never
1: heard the word megachurch. Well, I
0: don't think it probably had been coined. <laughs> no, it hadn't invented No,
1: no. Uh, all we knew was we were going to one place for life. Okay. And uh, most churches, most organizations set their goals too low and try to achieve them too quickly. We need to set larger goals and then give the rest of your life for them. And so we overestimate what we can do in five years, but we underestimate what we can do in 20 or 30
2: hmm. We had some big dreams. I mean, we won't we deny that. We yeah. Rick had visited um the chose largest Church, church in lo- the world. yeah in Korea. Right. I mean, you were studying exactly. what made for a vibrant And church. so we had big dreams. We just we thought it would take those 40 years, right. yeah. you know, if it happened at all, it would right. take 40 years. Mm-hmm. Had no idea that it would grow as quickly as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but we fully intended, we didn't tell people that because we were 25 years old. This was the first church Rick had pastored. You know, people would have looked askance if we had said, and we think, you know, we'll have 20,000 members someday. <laughs> it's like, yeah, who are you kidding? <laughs> who you do guys, you think you are? Yeah, Pimply faced yeah. little guy and, you know, scrowny yeah. little girl. Um, mm-hmm. But so we, we believe that that's what God was going to
0: do. We just didn't know what happened so fast. hmm there is kind of a, a contrast or maybe a paradox that wouldn't make sense to a lot of people on the outside who mm. don't know how your church works, mm. um, which is to say, at one and the same time, it's a big size, right? It's, mm. what do you have, 20,000 people a on a typical on a weekend,
1: 20,000. There are over 100,000 names on the church on the roll. On so, yeah. so
0: you're talking big numbers. It's a city. Right. And, and this, a is, c- a this is not just a church. This is a campus. <laughs> mayor, Rick. Right. And then at the same time, um, the community is really generated and sustained through small groups that you call cells,
1: right? Absolutely. So so there's this… In fact, you're probably one of the only interviewers or journalists who have ever understood what I'm talking about as is, because that really is the key. Most people miss what Saddleback Church or even other churches are about they see the big service on sunday that is uh-huh. the tip of the iceberg uh-huh. which is less than 2 or 3% of the church what the church is is what happens during the week the over 3300 small groups that meet in homes in 95 cities across southern california from santa monica to carlsbad All right and the over 400 Ministries reach out into the community. the The Sunday morning service is simply a funnel. It's the most visible, but it is honestly the least significant part of, and, of the church.
0: And I think that gets at another, you know, nuance of mm-hmm. of what makes your church work mm-hmm. and grow, which I think is not easily understandable. You said mm-hmm. that entry is easy, right? I mean, you create a worship experience that feels very comfortable and inviting to people, um, and and perhaps quite different from churches they grew up in, yeah. and, and yet once they're part of the community, it's a big commitment. You're actually asking a We're lot of people. We're constantly
1: turning up the commitment. Kay can talk about this. She's just written a book on commitment about this. But uh, we, uh, we got this idea from Jesus. When Jesus uh, is walking down the street, the very first thing he ever says, a couple of uh, guys say, hey, Lord, where are you going? And he says, come and see. It's the very first thing Jesus said, come and see. It's just like, check me out. There's no commitment. It's just... Check me out. So
0: some people criticize you for <coughs> simplifying the gospel, watering yeah. down the gospel. And yeah. I mean, are you saying in a sense you, you do that as a very first impression? Well, in the
1: first place, simplifying and making it shallow are two very different things. Okay. Simple is not shallow. Uh, simple is not simplistic. Mm-hmm. Simple is not superficial. Simple means Understandable. You know, I've got an earned doctorate in theology, and I could use throw the words around in Greek and Hebrew and, and confuse them. They go, wow, that guy's deep. And actually, I was just muddying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more important thing is, is it understandable? So I'm a translator. When we first got here 27 years ago, Kay and I spent 12 weeks just talking to people. Before we ever said a word, we just listened. We talked to literally thousands of people. Just
0: going door to door. Going
1: door to door and just talking. And what I discovered is most people weren't anti-God. They just didn't like church. Okay, (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. not like, Jesus, I got no problem with Jesus. I just don't like religion. I don't like the rules, the regulations, the rituals, and it doesn't make sense to me. And if I went to a church where I got something on Sunday that actually helped me on Monday morning, I'd probably go.
0: But when you think about the commitment that's involved in being a member of Saddleback Church, you know, what what is asked of people? What's that then, beyond that welcome? Most
1: Christian believers could not join our church because they wouldn't be willing to make the commitments. We actually are a church that's built on four different covenants, and we're constantly turning up the heat. You can always tell how a church is growing numerically, just count the people, and you can tell if a church is growing financially, count the offering. How do you know if, if people's lives are actually being changed? That they're making a difference in the world and that they're they're growing spiritually? Well, one of them is, is you turn up the level of commitment. And so we have a series of classes, it's very systematic, that is now called the Purpose Driven Paradigm. And we've now trained over a half a million pastors in 163 countries in this paradigm.
0: Rick and Kay Warren. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today as part of our series on New Evangelical Leaders, I'm speaking with the Warrens at their Saddleback Church in California. What Rick Warren calls the purpose-driven paradigm is based on a course of study that accompanies his 2002 book, The Purpose-Driven Life. Warren originally conceived this book as a discussion series to mobilize his congregation toward deeper levels of personal faith and mission in the world, Christian purpose. Though The Purpose Driven Life did not immediately show up on major bestseller lists, it sold in bulk at phenomenal levels in Christian bookstores and through Warren's global online network of pastors. Sales are now approaching 30 million. A table in Rick Warren's office is lined with copies of the book in some of the 60 languages into which it has now been translated. This has generated tremendous wealth. In response, the Warrens have paid 25 years of Rick's salary back to Saddleback Church. They now give 90% of their income away, keeping 10% for themselves, a practice they call reverse tithing. And even as fame and wealth rolled in, Kay Warren was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her cancer is now in remission. But almost simultaneously, she had what she describes as an even more life-changing experience than that— a conversion of sorts that Rick Warren now credits with transforming the whole direction of their ministry.
2: The book came out, and within about six to eight months after that, I picked up a magazine article that had a story on AIDS in Africa. And I didn't care about AIDS in Africa. And I don't, I can only just look back and say God intended that particular day that that article would catch my attention, because there's no other reason I would have read it. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. But that particular day when I read it, it, it stirred my heart and it, it broke my heart. And I realized that I didn't know anybody with AIDS and I didn't know any orphans. And mm-hmm. that was just a stunning new thought to me. But do you think that there'd been an opening
0: for you because of this, of your own illness?
2: Is I wasn't sick yet. About a year later, after I'd begun to just take these baby steps in becoming an advocate for people with HIV, I'd been to Africa twice. Mm-hmm. Right after that is when I discovered I had breast cancer. So it was about a year into my own mm-hmm. journey. It was of, the year that purpose-driven
1: purpose-driven life came out on 9/11, 2002.
3: Okay.
1: One year right. exactly after 9/11, it took off in the churches immediately. Mm-hmm. But it was about a year later that all of a sudden the media or the public caught attention of it. And that year, when it just exploded, was the year Kay got cancer.
2: Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a confusing time. Because well, I would think so. It was, because here was this tremendous success that had come mm-hmm. um, our way. Um, God had, had changed my thinking radically. I was embarking on a completely different journey than what I saw happening in the second half of my life. And then right in the middle of that, I got breast cancer. And, um, and I was really sick. I mean, the chemo made me really, really sick. I didn't do treatment well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, the confusing part was just not the why. Sometimes people say, well, did mm-hmm. you ask God why? And I, I really never did say why me, but I did ask why now. The timing of it just seemed so, I, I couldn't figure it out. So the, um, the lessons in that, I mean, changed our life. As you say, it, it did increase my empathy for people who are sick. It changed me completely. Mm-hmm. Um, to have, but as your had interest that got my attention, it was. Did you get it at first? Not at were you all with her? No. Well, I would bring him. I'd bring him. You know, CDs or tapes, and I'd say, "There's, there's, a, there's, just, there's just you've got to read this about AIDS look, in Africa, about especially AIDS, uh-huh. Uh-huh. about AIDS." Uh-huh. And um, and he just kind of was not patronizing, but just kind of like, "Well, that's that's good, honey. I'm I'm really glad this is something you care about, and and yeah. I support you, and you go for Tell it. That's great." Wh- what was it that you felt you hadn't seen, you hadn't known? That- I, I just. I, I lived such a comfortable life, you know? I have a comfortable life. I have a great marriage, good family. I live in a beautiful part of the country. I mean, I just had so much. And to it was that day when I read that article, it felt like that a blindfold was yanked off of that my eyes. That there was eyes. this
0: magnitude of there suffering. There was a magnitude
2: of suffering, mm-hmm. the, the enormity of, of children, suddenly the reality, the fact that I didn't know a single orphan. Hmm. I, can't even, I can't even say to you how profound that was to realize that I didn't know a single one and to... to suddenly 12 get it just from that one disease. to know at that time that they right. were in one place and I just couldn't fathom that mm-hmm. and that just began a thought process of, of it opened my eyes to look at the rest of the world and then I didn't just see HIV but I saw you know prostitution, child prostitution child slavery,
4: trafficking, uh, trafficking
2: mm-hmm. um, bonded, bonded labor, um, and it just was the doorway to suddenly seeing the way that the rest of the world
1: lives because poverty and education and disease and corruption—all these things go together. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can't just once you start dealing with AIDS, which was the the catalyst yeah. to the realize that you know opened. by 2020 there could be 100 million people who've had AIDS. Well, that makes the Black Plague minuscule mm-hmm. in comparison.
2: Well, and and when I. Not stop just reading about it. I had to go. I went to Africa twice in six weeks period of time, and that shattered me. I said I was, I was a seriously disturbed woman before that, and then I became a ruined woman because <laughs> I saw it with my own eyes, and it became personal. Yeah. It wasn't just statistics because mm-hmm. after a while, statistics are numbing. But suddenly when you see that and it wears a name and a face, you, it's just not so easy to ignore. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't ignore it anymore it was things i could have ignored through the other years and thought oh somebody's doing something about right. that and you also in that year had resources I mean, As, suddenly, yes, that was that was an additional thing. But it wasn't even so much about the resources financially that we had, because if it were just up to the people who have financial resources, only a few people would be responsible. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, when you look at the Bible, you look at Scripture, you just see a page after page after page of God's love for the poor, for the sick, for mm-hmm. the orphan, the widow. And that puts the responsibility back on every one of us, not just those who have financial resources.
1: Mm-hmm. When, when Kay first started talking about AIDS. I did. I said, babe, that's great. You supported me in the vision of Saddleback, and I'm going to support you in your Uh vision. It's not my calling. Uh My calling is to train pastors and train leaders, and I've been doing that for 27 years, and to grow a model church. But the more she talked about it, the more it started to grab my heart, Uh and I'm going,
0: you must have also just been moved by, as she says, how distressed she was. This is a big
1: deal. Uh-huh. And, she, and, and I could not ignore it. And we say the most powerful language is pillow talk. Yeah. You know, when you're laying in bed and you're talking about stuff. And, and so I began to care about it. And so then I decided to go with Kay on one of her trips. She started going to Africa to learn how the African church was dealing with AIDS because okay. they know far more about it than we do. So I, she was going to Malawi and Mozambique and South Africa and, so I went to South Africa with her, and I did what I do. I trained leaders. And we did a seminar and broadcasted to 400 sites across Africa and had about 80,000 leaders in that, and I thought that that was what I was there for. But sometimes God is sneaky. Kay's taught me this, that he, <laughs> he gets you with a curveball. And I went with her. She was going to go study AIDS, and I was going to go train leaders. After I finished that, uh, that training, I said, take me out to see a typical church. So we got in a Jeep, and we went out into the middle of the bush, and we found this uh, tent church. All they had was a tent, and it was 75 people, 50 adults, and 25 kids orphaned by AIDS. So they're caring for their own kids, plus these other kids who've lost their moms and dads. And they've grown a garden, and they're feeding the kids, and they've got a few books. They're schooling the kids, and the kids are sleeping in the tent at night. And I thought, this church is doing more to help the poor than my mega church. Hmm. Was huh. so little, huh. they are doing so, we're not helping one orphan, and they're helping 25 with all they've got is a tent. Right. And that was like a knife in my heart and said, that is going to change. And it was out of that event that that night that I came up with the idea of what we call the peace plan, mm-hmm. and it started a whole new direction.
0: Rick and Kay Warren. What Rick Warren calls his Peace Plan is a new attempt, which is yet to be genuinely realized, to apply the purpose-driven vision to global crises such as poverty, illness, and illiteracy. It's based on a simple idea that local churches are everywhere, and that networks of purpose-driven Christians are in position to knowledgeably and practically address global crises one neighborhood at a time where governments or NGOs might not reach. Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, for example, has invited the Warrens to test this vision in his country, which is battling poverty and AIDS as it recovers from a recent history of genocide and corruption.
1: There are a lot of problems in the world that affect millions of people, but there are five that affect billions. And as I was traveling around the world in all these countries, I kept seeing the same five problems over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, spiritual emptiness people lack meaning and purpose in their lives they're not connected to god Um, corrupt leadership egocentric corrupt leadership Uh, self-serving a lot of people start off with service and pretty soon it turns to serve us how do i stay elected how do i consolidate my power how do i use other people to feather my nest they start off right, but somehow there's a switch in values.
0: It's a human condition, isn't yeah. it? I mean-
1: <laughs> and then uh, extreme poverty. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day. Uh, a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. We're working in places like Rwanda, where it's 68 cents a day. Mm. They grow coffee and couldn't afford a cup of Starbucks. Uh, pandemic diseases. This year, 500 million people will get malaria, a problem we solved 100 years ago. It- it's unacceptable. It's like we don't have the leaders who will say, enough's enough, we're gonna stop this. Mm-hmm. And then, um,
0: but you think that it can be stopped with churches in a way that other approaches? I do. Have Even the
1: literacy, which is half the world can't functionally can't read or write. I was speaking at Davos World Economic Forum a, a year ago, and I kept hearing about people talking about the need for public and private partnerships. And what they meant was, business and government has to get together to solve these issues of poverty, disease, illiteracy, trafficking, AIDS, all these different things, and I said, well, you're right, but you're not completely there. You've missed the answer because a two-legged stool will fall over and a one-legged stool will fall over. You need three legs. There is a government role. There is a business role. And there is a faith role. There's a church role. There is the public sector. There is the profit sector. And there is the church sector. Each has something that the other can't offer. There are things only government can do. They build roads. They provide safety. They're things the only business can do. They they bring capital. They they have expertise, management skills. But the church has four or five things that government and business will never, ever have. And those things, cannot. we cannot uh, deal with these global issues until we engage what the church has. And you're
0: talking church ecumenically. I'm um,
1: talking about local churches right. of all denominations now what the church has when i talk about churches first thing universal distribution i could take you to 10 million villages around the world the only thing in it is a church they don't have a school they don't have a clinic they don't have anything else it is the only social structure in much of the world mm-hmm. you get out of the capital there isn't a government in most of the wor- most of the world the church is universally there the boots are already on the ground The church is bigger than the United Nations. It speaks more languages than the United Nations. (laughs) It's with more people groups than the United Nations. There are 2.3 billion people in the world who claim to be followers of Christ. Now, that's all different varieties, factions, and levels of commitment. But there are 2.3 billion people who are church members. That means the church is bigger than China. Okay. It's bigger than India. In right. fact, it's bigger than China and India put together. So
0: I want to ask you how you would respond to many people, I think, who would hear that mm-hmm. and, and find it potentially frightening. Mm-hmm. Because the church, um, as you say, means many things. Mm-hmm. And I think, Kay, even as you got into the AIDS crisis, you felt that the church had made life harder it had created stigmas you you've both talked about repentance in terms of the church on the issue of AIDS. so so how do you you know how do you interact with people who say i get your vision as a management strategy Mm of of of, you know it's really a very powerful idea Mm -hmm. but but we can't always count on the church to do the right thing yeah how, how would you how do you engage in that conversation well i
2: i think that we 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 talk about what the church can bring Yeah, the church has flaws, the church has warts, absolutely, we already already mentioned that. But the church brings something to the table that government and business cannot bring. And Rick's mentioned some of those. But one of the things that um, the church can bring is um, love we do what we do because of love. We are motivated by the highest motivation there could possibly be, which is we want to serve God. We want to serve people who are suffering. And that that gives you staying power over the long run. And working with people is messy and it's hard. And so to have that motivation is um, something that I think that the church brings. I think the church also brings um, the moral authority to talk about, Getting rid of stigma. It's one thing for government to say, everyone must stop hating each other, Mm -hmm. or you must accept people with HIV. Or men must treat Um, women with
1: respect. And
2: and you can Mm -hmm. say those words, but it's really only the church that has the moral authority to actually create and help people with behavior change. And change hearts. And change hearts Mm -hmm. and change, yeah, from the inside out.
1: You know what Kay's saying is really important about motivation. My motivation is Mm -hmm. I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm commanded to do that. Now, that doesn't have to be your motivation for us to work together. What I would say is the people who, I I spoke a couple years ago at the Aspen Ideas Institute, and somebody said, well, we don't want people of faith doing it with their faith motivation because they might want to proselytize proselytize or whatever. And I said this, well, if you take all the people of faith out of, of the equation and say only secularists can do humanitarian work, you've just ruled out most of the world.
0: Well, let's let's talk about one of the reasons I'm sitting here with you, which is the way I think um evangelical voices have echoed in this society in the last 20 30 years. Yeah. Um,
1: they got off base. Historically, what mm-hmm. we're doing here is nothing new. For 2000 years, the churches of all kinds, Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, whatever they are, Orthodox, have always cared for the sick, assisted the poor, defended the defenseless. We were in uh, England uh, uh, a couple years ago. I was speaking in Nottingham, and I went over to the sheriff of Nottingham's castle. (laughs) You know, there actually was a sheriff of Nottingham, Mm -hmm. and there's a statue of, of Robin Hood out front. And I went down into the dungeon, into the basement, and there was a diorama of what life was like in the Middle Ages, and I took a picture of a poster that said, in the Middle Ages, uh, life centered around the church. They educated the children. They cared for the sick. They taught job skills and and mentoring uh, for uh, training. They uh, taught leadership. They were the center of scholasticism and, and preserved the documents. What happened is about 75 years ago, certain groups of believers started thinking you could answer these problems with politics. Right. I totally disagree. Mm-hmm. And even evangelical, that term got co-opted as a political term.
0: Especially in the last, just in the last few decades, I yes. think. Mm-hmm. last
1: 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is not a political term. Our kingdom is not of this world. And I, in my church, have Democrats and Republicans and Independents and Libertarians, and I pastor all of them.
0: Rick and Kay Warren. This is Speaking of Faith, after a short break, why Rick and Kay Warren want to refashion the agenda of evangelical Christianity in public life. Also, how Kay Warren talks about both abstinence and condoms in her work on AIDS. In many ways, our radio program is just the beginning. When I interviewed Rick and Kay Warren in their private office at Saddleback Church, we also filmed our conversation, and it's free for you to download on our website, speakingoffaith.org, and through our podcast. You can also download an MP3 of my entire unedited conversation with them. Hear and see what was cut to make this an hour of radio. All this and more at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
3: Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Jeannie Francis in The Note. A newspaper columnist finds a note containing a message of hope and forgiveness and searches for the intended recipient. Saturday night at 9, 8 central on Hallmark Channel.
0: Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the second part of our series on new evangelical leaders in what some are calling the post-religious right era. Last week, I spoke with progressive evangelical social activist Jim Wallace, who wrote God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. This week, I'm with Rick and Kay Warren at their Saddleback Church in Orange County, California. Like Jim Wallace, Rick Warren has become a spiritual advisor to powerful people. In his case, these include conservative figures such as Rupert Murdoch and George W. Bush. But he also calls Hillary Clinton a friend, and he's deflected conservative criticism for inviting politicians from both parties to the Global Summit on AIDS. He and Kay have held at Saddleback for the past three years. Rick Warren says he is far less interested in politics per se than most high profile evangelical leaders of recent years. He says he is out to repair an artificial and counterproductive split that took place in early 20th century Protestantism, defining personal morality and social justice as competing priorities. Kay Warren has defied this split as she has become a leading Christian activist on AIDS. She has publicly urged her congregation and others to repent for a past indifference to the AIDS crisis and for contributing to the stigmatization of people with AIDS.
1: The Catholics never separated outreach and spiritual depth from social action. Mm -hmm. They never went through that split, but Protestants did. And the typically more liberal churches theologically said, we're going to care about social issues, Uh, social justice, racial justice, poverty, disease, economic issues. In fact, there were a number of theologians at the beginning of the 20th century who basically said, we don't need the atonement of Jesus Christ anymore. We don't need personal salvation. All we need to do is redeem the social structures of society, and the world will be a better place. Well, in reaction to that, of course, evangelicals said, we're just going to care about personal morality and family morality, which is right. They're both right. They are both right, okay. and so there are people like Kay and myself and a whole host of other younger evangelical leaders who say, this is not an either-or. It's not a black or white. It's a both-and. Jesus cares about uh, economic issues and racial equality and justice issues and things like that, and he cares about personal morality and family, and so what we're doing is expanding the agenda. And as I've said publicly many times, uh, for a long, for a few years now, we've been known for what we're against more than what we're for.
0: You mean and we I, evangelical Christians? Yeah, and mm-hmm.
1: I intend to change that. Okay. I'm tired of that. I'm for <laughs> the poor. I'm for the sick. I'm for the things Jesus cared about.
0: I wonder when you started this, when you en- landed in Saddleback Valley, if you thought that you would actually have this role in the larger evangelical movement as this this kind of leadership. Never, Is this we don't know never. what our
1: role, role will be tomorrow. We stopped right. trying to predict the future a long time no. ago.
0: I mean, I always knew
2: Rick was, that God had big plans for Rick. I met him when he was 17, and I said he was, I'd never met anybody like him then, and I've never met anybody like him to this day. So I had a sense that God was going to do something um, through Rick, not because Rick was mm-hmm. anything different, it's just... For whatever reason, it was God's choice he was going to use Rick. Um, and I always saw myself as a very, very ordinary average person who didn't have very much to offer. I always thought it was interesting that Rick decided to marry me because I thought he was this incredible superstar, and I was really um, just didn't have much at all. And You didn't um, see what I saw. No, he, he's always seen potential. and uh, But you're such been, an important part of how
0: this vision has expanded. Absolutely. As well. That's the part I didn't see. What you described you're doing, you're bringing together some different traditions. You're bringing together some values that have have perhaps artificially seemed to be at different poles. Mm. You know, one of the criticisms of, of Christian activists on AIDS has been not just proselytizing, but for example, not talking about condoms at all. So just tell me something about your thought processes and your discernment as you thought about this issue of personal morality, which is important to you, Absolutely. the sanctity of family, the sanctity of mm-hmm. marriage values. You, you believe in abstinence. I do. I do. Um, but how did you kind of wrestle with also these practice practical issue of mm-hmm. condom use? Well, I, I spent
2: a lot of time thinking, talking to a lot of people, researching. Um, it wasn't just my own ideas. But it was just, it, I finally came down to the place that I could say with um, with conviction, and, and, and ask people, because that's one of the first questions people will ask, okay, so which side of the debate are you on in right. the prevention debate? and you debate? had to take a side. And you had yeah. to take a side. And yeah. what I've said, yeah. but I believe with my whole heart, is who could ever argue that saving sex for marriage is not a wonderful protection against HIV and a host of other sexually transmitted diseases, right. as well as pregnancy? Who could ever argue that being faithful in a marriage, if, if a husband and wife are faithful to each other, how could anybody say that's not a protection? And how can anybody say that using a condom correctly every time consistently isn't a protection against HIV? So to me, it really wasn't um, an either or. It was um, they all three are effective. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's why not use the ones I, I really particularly concentrate on on A and B because I really believe. Abstinence and faithful uh, Yeah, and yeah mm-hmm. because of my beliefs in the Bible of sexual purity. And, um, and believing that that's the absolute best protection for people. So why not go for the goal? Why not go for the best? And at the same time, I'm also cognizant of the fact that not everybody is going to do that. And not everybody even has that as an opportunity. Um, gender violence, women are the recipients of violence every day right. where they, they are have very few choices. And so sometimes um, in an ideal world, we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a world where sometimes things are broken. So I'm not about to say, well, there isn't this other method. That, that also can be protection. If, it's, anyway, used, do it. if right. it's used correctly and, and consistently, right? Yeah. And so that, to me, there's no, I don't have any, um, there's no contradiction between those. What
1: we found, though, is that the voice of reason gets attacked from the extremes on every side. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't, you know, if we were simply very conservative, we would only have one set of critics, liberals. Right. If, if, on the other hand, we were liberal. In our, in our moral views, we would only have one set of critics, uh, you know, very fundamental or conservative people. But the fact is, when you try to stake out a middle road, which we believe is what Jesus did, Jesus had values, had rules, had, had commandments that he says, this is the way to do it. But he also said, I want to see mercy. And he all, all, also protected the dignity of people. Hmm. And always defended their of dignity of all people, and, and actually he was called the friend of sinners. I considered that to be a good reputation. So I'd love a, to
2: have that
0: on my
1: tombstone. I would too, <laughs> Warren, friend
2: of
0: sinners, Kay and Rick Warren. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the new evangelical leaders. <laughs> This is the Gospel Choir of Rick and K. Warren's Saddleback Church. You know, Rick, you are known as a friend to a lot of very powerful people now. Um, Rupert Murdoch, who also is your publisher, you've said that you're his pastor, um, George well, W. Bush. a lot of people have said well, that. Who don't and even go to church. <laughs> Time Magazine has said you're America's pastor. Yeah. I want to ask you what, um, what spiritual temptations or compromises come with that new role that you have um, of being well, influential. Well, whenever people role. ask me,
1: what can I pray for you? I always tell them, pray three things. Pray for integrity. Pray for humility, and pray for generosity, because they are the opposite of the three temptations that affect not just every person, but particularly affect every leader. Uh, These are the three temptations that were in the Garden of Eden. They're the three temptations that Jesus handled. They're the three temptations Moses handled. The Bible calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is the temptation to feel. I deserve to feel good. And it's more than sex it could be food, it could be drugs, it's anything I deserve to feel good. I'm going to use my power to make me feel good. Like when they said, Jesus, why don't you turn these stones to bread? Use your ability, your talent to serve yourself. That's the temptation to to feel. Then the lust of the eyes is the temptation to have. I see it and I want it. And that's, uh, it's greed. And then the pride of life is the temptation to be. I want people to to worship me, I want people to uh, envy me. And this is passion, possession, and position. Well, the antidote to those three are humility, generosity, and integrity. And if you build your life on those three, then you're not gonna fall for the common things that cause people to stumble. I actually have a file that I've kept now for over 30 years of ministry. And every time a, a Christian leader stumbles in the area of money, or sex, or pride, and there's an article on them. I cut it out, and I throw it in that file. And about mm, every few months, I will go back and I read through that file just to put the fear of God in me.
0: <laughs> but you know, let's talk about something more subtle. You know, not that you would that you would have a great fall. Mm-hmm. You know, you do. You have a great marriage. You yeah. you are a healthy person. I think you've worked hard at that of being yeah. balanced inside. But you don't accomplish great things. You don't write the best-selling one of the best-selling books in history mm-hmm. without an ego, mm-hmm. without ambition. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a personal power as well. I don't know. Well, what, the, what's the kind when, of nuance struggle
1: when uh, the book became such a big success, and I started getting calls to speak at United Nations, yeah. Congress, yeah. whatever?
0: I see a Pentagon over yeah, there.
1: Oxford, yeah. Cambridge, Harvard, the things. Like, well, all of a sudden. Um, I began to say, what am I supposed to do with the money, and what am I supposed to do with the the, uh, the fame? And based on two passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 9, we made some decisions of what to do with the money. Basically, it was to give it all away. I don't take a salary from Saddleback. In fact, I added up all the church had paid me in 25 years, and we gave mm-hmm. it all back. That was actually the easy part. The hard part was, what do I do with this notoriety? What do I do with these phone calls? Mm-hmm. Uh, when when literally world leaders are calling and uh, on a regular basis. And I found a passage of scripture called Psalm 72. And Psalm 72 is Solomon's prayer for more influence. Now, when he wrote this psalm, he was the wisest man in the world, the wealthiest man in the world, and the leader of Israel at its apex Mm -hmm. of power. And yet in this psalm, he says, God, I want you to make me famous. It sounds completely self-centered. I want you to bless me. I want you to spread the fame of my name to many countries. I want you to give me power and bless me until you read the motivation behind it. And he says, so that the king may support the widow and orphan, care for the defenseless, speak up for the oppressed, uh, defend the immigrant, the foreigner, uh, those in prison, Uh, assist the poor and care for the sick. And and basically, he he mentions all the marginalized of society. Today, Mm -hmm. he'd talk about uh, the elderly, uh, the mentally handicapped, those on the fringe. And and to me, out of that passage, it said, the purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. Most people don't have the spiritual maturity to handle power. They think it's for their benefit. It is not. Mm -hmm. The purpose is to benefit others.
0: But when you are um, being a friend or spiritual advisor mm-hmm. to a Rupert Murdoch, to a George mm-hmm. W. Bush, to several of the candidates who are running for president now, are you able to be an uncomfortable presence to them to challenge them the way you challenge your, your congregation?
1: I don't have any problem speaking the truth to power. I've actually sat with presidents in Africa, and when we were getting ready to come in and start the peace plan, and, and my first question is, are you going to rip me off? And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, if you're corrupt, you need to tell me because you really don't want me in your country because I bring a lot of exposure. And if you are corrupt, I will expose it. And so it would be better for you if you're going to just take the money and put in a Swiss bank account. You don't want me in your country. Okay. So I don't have a problem. I, I can't give you details, but I want to tell you, I have said some things that Kay said, you said What? Okay. <laughs> to that world leader. Yeah. And I said, well, since I have you on the phone, I'd like to just tell you this. But my, my, I never, ever talk about policy. That is not my role. Okay. I am not a politician, and I am not a policy advisor. I'm a pastor. And so I'm going to deal with your character, your integrity, your family, your stress level, your honesty. I do not pretend that I'm a, a consultant to power. Okay. I am a pastor to these people only at their invitation.
0: to ask both of you about how your theology continues to deepen and expand and change because you have had so many experiences in the last years that you never predicted that have taken you to new places, to global crises. So, you know, Kay, I would just ask you first, you know, working with people with HIV, which is not just an issue of homosexuality, Mm -hmm. but you have then encountered many people Mm -hmm. um, who have encountered this by way of sexuality, heterosexual and homosexual. How has your religious understanding of that Changed either in terms of how you think about homosexuality, or the or the proper Christian response to that. How has this changed you?
2: Um, um, I think that I growing up in a very conservative. Um, um, gosh, I'm having to start to, no, yeah. denomination as, far as oh. Oh. the word. I was Southern like, Baptist, like yeah, and so I think I grew up pretty typical of a lot of people being afraid of people who are gay and, um, judgmental, didn't want to be near them. Um, just incredibly uncomfortable. And in the last five years, I think what I've, where I've come to is, is understanding God's deep love for every person he has made. That has been something that has been a long journey for me to understand. And to put myself in the same category of needing Jesus, I think that I grew up putting people in categories as though I was okay and other people were not. And to understand the depth of my own brokenness, the depth of my own longing to really be close to God, to know that I have a home, that I have a place where my soul can rest, where there's somebody who accepts me, who loves me passionately, who will never stop thinking about me from the day I was conceived till the day I meet him face to face and wanting others to have that same relationship. And so wanting others to have that has caused me to move across boundaries that my tradition, my culture, my faith might have said no, you can't go there. And and to, to really try to look at, at people in the same way that, that Jesus did. And when we're talking about Jesus was a friend of sinners, I know the ugliness in my own heart. And so by his grace and his mercy, he has accepted me. How could I not
0: offer that to somebody else? And Rick, I want to ask you, a line like this in the purpose driven life. Because God made you for a reason, he also decided when you would be born and how long you would live. He planned the days of your life in advance, choosing the exact time of your birth and death. In the last few years you've met people in Rwanda who've lived their entire lives in poverty and genocide, you know, who've had to struggle just to survive with body and spirit intact. How has that what has that done to this theology of yours? How has that expanded or changed your understanding of God or
1: The reason there are hungry people in the world, there are suffering people in the world is because of our own selfishness. What do I say to a woman in Sudan holding a baby who's dying of lack of water? The only thing I can say is I'm sorry. I am sorry. Why did I not get here sooner? Uh, It is our own selfishness. There's plenty of food in the world. There's plenty of water in the world. When I say, God, why don't you do something about this? God is saying to you, I'm asking you the same question. Uh, Why don't you do something about it? God is saying, why don't you do something about it? And I lay awake at night thinking about that. But on the other hand, I know that one day that suffering's gonna be ended, and there is a hope. The bottom line is, I believe the hope of the world is Jesus Christ working through his church. And I'm more convinced of that than ever before. And we will work with governments and businesses and non-believers and atheists and gays and anybody who wants to work who says, let's make this a better place. Rick
0: Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, and author of The Purpose-Driven Life and the Purpose-Driven Church. Kay Warren has recently published her first book, Dangerous Surrender If I- Listen to the first part of this series, my conversation with progressive evangelical leader, Jim Wallace, on our website, speakingoffaith.org. You can download MP3s of both programs and others in different ways through our website, our podcast, and our weekly email newsletter. You can also watch and listen to my entire unedited in-person conversation with Rick and Kay Warren. Share your thoughts with us and sign up for our weekly email and podcast. Listen when you want, wherever you want. Discover more at speakingoffaith.org. Senior Producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with Producers Colleen Sheck and Shiraz Janjua, with assistance from Anna Marsh. Our Online Editor is Trent Gillis, Bill Buesenberg is our Consulting Editor, Kate Moose is the Managing Producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett.
3: Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Jeannie Francis in The Note. A newspaper columnist finds a note containing a message of hope and forgiveness and searches for the intended recipient. Saturday night at 9, 8 central on Hallmark Channel. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs and the George Family Foundation, Funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life.
0: Next week, we explore the exuberant spiritual world of Rumi, the 13th century mystic and poet whose words and ideas echo powerfully today. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.